only believe. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people, God, where we are together. You are there in our midst. We thank you that your life, God, changes ours, that needs are met this morning, lives are healed this morning. Through your name, Jesus. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. Sing that again. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. Stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it 
we make miracle work promise keep that in the darkness my god that is who you are you are we make miracle work promise keep that in the darkness my god that is who you are 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 praise you heavenly father oh that we would come to know you in all of those ways as our way maker our miracle worker, our promise keeper. Hallelujah. Praise you, praise you, praise you, Heavenly Father. That if we could just get outside of ourselves and focus on you, that you are where our needs are met, you are where our lives are shaped and formed and healed. Hallelujah. You are the way maker, our miracle worker, Heavenly Father. Hallelujah. That is who you are, God. Praise you, Heavenly Father. Praise you, praise you, praise you. The God who never leaves, the God who never fails. The one who always keeps his word. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord, that your word is true, that we can stand on your word for anything that we may be facing. Water you turned into wine You opened the eyes of the blind There's no one like you There's none like you And into the darkness you shine And out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you there's none like you Cause our God is greater Our God is stronger God you are higher than any other Our God is healer Also in power Our God Our God Would you worship Him this morning With hands lifted high Making the declaration that He
that if our God is for us, that no one could ever stop us. If our God is with us, then what could stand against? Hallelujah. Let's sing it out. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against?
we worship you. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You know, I just had in my heart as we were singing that there, how we need to just make the choice, reaffirm the choice, and say this after me. I am strong in the Lord. I choose to be strong in the Lord. I will not fear. I choose joy. I choose peace. You, now you don't have to say this anymore, so you can stop talking now. But just to set our will, to set our place. These are last days that we're living in. And to say even more than ever we have ever done before, may we be doers of God's Word. His Word is life. And may we be doers of His Word. Hallelujah. We serve a good God. Amen. Before you're seated, why don't you uh, wave there at Oni on camera number one. And let's say good morning to our church family worshiping with us from home. Praise the Lord after you've done that. Greet several people around you. Give them a warm welcome and God bless you. Children are dismissed to kids' church at this time. And after you've done all of that, well, then you may be seated. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. It's good to be together in church today. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. If uh, you're visiting with us today and worshiping for the very first time, we want to let you know how happy we are that you're with us. If you want to just lift up your hand. Is there anybody here worshiping with us today for the first time? I don't think so. Boy, half the church left with all those kids just leaving. Praise the Lord. So thankful for our kids' ministry. Amen. Uh Speaking of children, we have a couple of new children born this, these last few weeks in our church. And the first one, new daddy for the first time, Ryan over here. I think most people know about it who are on social media. And um, let me see here. On um, September the 28th, Duke Roman Tilo, strong name, was born at 7.45 p.m. Now, are you ready for this? Is Nicole here today? She is? Where is she? She's in the mother's room. Okay. Everyone needs to go and tell her. 36 years of our church, she, she has the record. Are you ready? You ready for the size of this baby? 21 and a half inches long, but, wait, Lord, wait, is that correct? 10 pounds, one ounce. And that's why they named him Duke. <laughs> We're so happy for them. I think they're throwing up a picture of Duke on the, on the board. And um, yeah, he's really, really a sweetie. And then now we have another one. Daddy is sitting over here. Do you want to... Do you want to just wave or stand? Okay, we're really, this is their, but they're, they're number three. It's their number, th your third, right? Okay, you can put up a picture of this. Little sweet Levi Anthony Simon. They're putting up with brother and sister up there. Okay, he's on the opposite end of the spectrum because he was, was he three weeks early, I think? Three, was three weeks early. So he was five pounds, 13 ounces, 17 and a quarter inch long. And um, 
Yeah, and he's so precious. And he was in the hospital for a few days, but I believe he's home now, correct? Is that correct? He's home now. And so, yeah, so we're really happy for those two families. Praise the Lord. Amen. Then there's another photo we want to show. We were, um, Pastor Mike and I and our daughter Katie, we were in Colorado for a few days. And so last Sunday, Susie Hernandez, uh, well, no, actually, that's her maiden name. <laughs> I still call you Susie Hernandez, and how many years have you been married? 14 years. She's been in the church for a while. Jose, that's her husband up there on camera number two. I'm sorry, Jose, forgive me. But anyway, Susie Pacheco um, sent us this photo after church last week. They went to a Mexican restaurant in Irvine, I think it was. And who was on TV there at the Mexican restaurant? <laughs> So somebody, somebody wrote to me, I don't remember, oh, Tony, Tony Rebeck there, he wrote to me, he goes, we need to all go to that restaurant after church next Monday. <laughs> so if you want to find out the restaurant, see Susie. <coughs> Praise the Lord. Um, okay, we want to let you know a few uh, things that are going on this month. First of all, uh, I think most of you know about the financial seminar that's going to happen on Saturday, October 23. We have a good amount of people that are signed up for this. We're really glad because we know that it's going to be a blessing to you. It's going to be from 8.30 until noon here at the church. Um, it's gonna, we're going to have some financial planners here. Mark Mitchell, part of our church, he's moderating the whole thing. He's bringing in these financial planners and different ones, they do professional seminars. So these, these people, normally if you would go to their seminars, you would pay money. And But they are just doing it for free for our church to be a blessing and to be a help to our church family. As well as, um, you know, if you have family members or anyone that you know who would like to attend, they're welcome to attend as well. Um, they are going to, they specialize in various wealth planning and tax and estate issues. And they're going to also talk about um, uh, different pitfalls and um, problems that they've seen people have over and over again, um, some of the mistakes that they make with their money, and as well as talk about some of the latest um, changes in tax law and different things that you'll want to be aware of. So the seminar is free. We're also going to serve you a free breakfast, um, and so we uh, do need to know how about how many people are coming. So you can register either, if you don't uh, can't register online, you can register at the information center. There's a sign-up sheet there, or you can register online at foothillfamily.com. And I might add, and we said this so long, there is not going to be a sales pitch. So you're not going to come, and then somebody's going to try to sell you something at the end. You're not going to have that here. So um, make sure to come. Um, we know that it will be a blessing to you. Then on Friday, October 29th from 6.30 until 8, um, we're going to have our fall festival. Um, and so it's for the whole family. You know, if you consider yourself a kid or you are a kid, uh, whatever, and you want to come, it's open for the whole family. There's going to be fall festival games. The kids are going to dress up. They always have, I think, a pie-eating contest. So they have different things that are that's going to be going on. So bring your children, bring your neighbor's children. It's a great opportunity just to have them come to church. Um, we've had this, you know, people that, you know, they're witnessing to their neighbors or their family. They bring them to an event like this, and it really helps the kids to go, hey, you know what? I liked that place. Mom and dad, let's go. So it's also a great outreach. Um, and of course, there will be candy. 
Okay, then it, you may have noticed when you came into the sanctuary that there's a whole lot of uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes in the back of the sanctuary. So it's that time of year again. Um, so you can go back there, pick up boxes. Please don't take them unless you're going to use them because they are, um, they're limited as far as how many of them are available. So if you take one, fill it up. Take one, take 20. Uh, but um, f- fill them up, and you'll bring them back by um, Sunday, November the 14th. So you've got plenty of time to do it. Um, last year, we did a challenge. I, I, don't, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me because we weren't in the office this week. Last year, I know we did 700 and some odd boxes, and I believe the year before that, does anyone remember, was it three or 400? Susie, it was four ninety three the year before. You remember? I said it. She is amazing. Okay, there you go. So, anyway, but um, we also uh, brought boxes. Sometimes family members, people brought them to their place of business, um, uh, and we've had we had a lot of people even outside the church through people in our church encouraging other people to give in this way. It's it's a wonderful time to not just think about ourselves but to think about other people. And this is a great outreach to minister to children. So um, let's meet our number from last year and even exceed it. What do you say? Oh yeah, yes. Let's do it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Um, Then we have a prayer request we got um, today from David Jones. Um, He sent to us um, his um, niece, his beloved niece, had a seizure last night. Uh, The doctors think she may have had an aneurysm. She's in ICU. She's 28 years old. Pray for complete healing and that the brain bleed will not cause permanent damage and the swelling will go down. David, is she a, a believer? She is a believer too. Okay, great. Praise the Lord. So we'll pray. We will pray for her um, in just a moment here. Just as a reminder, um, the you can get offering envelopes in the seat around you. You can give by text. You can give online at foothillfamily.com. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful to be able to give a tithes and offerings because our God is a faithful God. Amen. Praise the Lord. So ushers, if you want to come, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we worship you today. We worship you with our lives. We worship you with our giving, with the first fruits of our increase. We worship you. Hallelujah. We are cheerful, prompt to do it givers. We're happy, O oh Lord that we can tithe and that we can obey you by giving offerings and giving to people, Lord, in any way that you lead us. You have done so much for us. You have saved us. You have redeemed our lives from destruction. And so it is our honor, O Lord, to give to you. It is our honor, O Lord, to worship you, not just with our money and monetary means, O Lord, but with our lives, And with our all, we worship you today. We thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for ministering to each person, to each heart, to each life. We encourage one another and lift each other up. Hallelujah. Speak to us today, Lord. 
We thank you for your presence here, Father. We pray for this girl. I don't know if we know her name here. Hold on. Hallelujah. For David's niece, we pray. In the name of Jesus, right now, Father, we speak healing to her body, to her brain. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that the hand of God, the healing mercy of God envelops her right now and quickens her mortal body, that there are no side effects to whatever this aneurysm has gone on, that there will be no permanent damage. But Jesus, the healer, that you touch her body now in the name of Jesus. We thank you for it. Thank you for your presence here today, Lord, and your spirit. We worship you. Have your way in us. Have your way in our families. Have your way in our church. We declare the goodness of the Lord. Hallelujah. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Family, once you've had the chance to give, would you stand and worship with us again? You know, it's good to look back on your life and see how faithful your Heavenly Father has been. Amen. So that you know when you are in the middle of a battle, of a trial, He's come through before and He will do it again. Amen. That your Lord never changes.
bless your holy name we exalt you as king of kings and lord of lords we thank you father that your word is infallible it never fails you never leave us thank you father that through the word through the goodness of your word we are conformed more and more into the image of christ we love you father in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this. He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. There are a couple of occasions where Jesus uh, marveled at the greatness of people's faith. There's uh, uh, an example or uh, uh, the story of the Syrophoenician woman that came to Jesus and petitioned him for uh, healing for her daughter. And Jesus resisted because she was not of the, the people of Israel. And the uh, blessings, covenant blessings of the Old Testament were strictly limited to the children of Israel. But she wouldn't give up. She worshipped him. She stayed with him. She pled her case. And as a result, Jesus identified that she had great faith. He said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. We see... In the two examples that Jesus identified as great faith, they both come from outside the people of the children of Israel. Jesus intimates here in Mark chapter, in Matthew chapter eight, he implies or intimates that that kind of faith should be prevalent 
in the people of the covenant. Now this man identifies something very specific about why he believes the way that Jesus identified his great faith. He said he's a man under authority. And he understands how authority works. When he tells his servants or the soldiers under him to go and do something or to come and, and minister in a different way, do a different thing, they respond. They do what they're told. And he identifies that as the operation or the working of authority. In other words, he says, I know what happens when words are spoken. The authority that he understands is that his commands are obeyed by his servants and by the soldiers under him. And Jesus marvels at this. He marvels at it. Now, why is Jesus so surprised about this great faith? Again, that implies that he should have found this great faith operating or working in the children of Israel and not just through a centurion. Back up with me to chapter 7. At the end of the chapter, verse 28, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Notice they were astonished at his teaching, not astonished at him. I think most of the church, and I've certainly thought this way for a long time, I think most of the church has the idea that Jesus was sent to the earth to prove that he was the son of God. And the way that he proved that he was the son of God is that he did things that nobody else could do. He performed miracles. He healed the sick in such a way that everybody looked at Jesus and recognized that he was something special or someone special. But notice that they're not astonished at him. It doesn't say that they were astonished because he proved that he was the son of God. It doesn't say that they were astonished because he did things that only the son of God could do. It says that they were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching, because, notice verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now notice the phrase, as one having authority. The word one is in italics in this, in this case and in this instance. The translators put that word in there to try to help us understand what's being spoken of or conveyed. But in this case, what they added took away from the truth rather than added to it. The translators are showing that they thought that Jesus was teaching and Jesus was ministering to prove that he was the son of God. They thought that Jesus was the one with authority and that these, these verses of scripture are identifying him as the, the, the authority holder. But that's not what these words mean. If you take out the word one, he taught them as having authority. Those two words as having are translated from the Greek. These two words in the Greek mean how the word as is a, is a descriptive word 
for how something takes place, the manner in which something takes place. And the word having means to hold. So he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. How to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, let's go back to the the centurion. How did the centurion come to this place of great faith? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the only way, the only possible way that the centurion had great faith was if he heard something from Jesus that put that faith in him. The Bible says that when we take heed to what we hear and we hear and accept the word of God, that it creates a deposit on the inside of us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. This centurion heard the same things that everybody else heard. He heard the same teachings, the same doctrine that everybody else heard, but he became a doer thereof. The thing that that amazed Jesus was that here was somebody outside the Abrahamic covenant people who heard what he taught. He taught people how to hold authority. And here's a man in just simple faith, simple trust, able uh, able to recognize the way that authority works through his own position as a military leader, And through that relating to the doctrine, the teaching that Jesus gave, he recognized that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. He recognized that what he did or didn't do would determine the outcome. Jesus taught him how to hold authority. And that was what he gathered from the teaching that Jesus did that amazed everybody else. Now we're right here in chapter 7. Let's see what Jesus taught. Back up with me to verse 24. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which many Bible scholars identifies the greatest exposition on the character and the nature of God of anything in Scripture. Verse 24, Jesus is teaching the people, Therefore whatsoever, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus is talking about what wise people do and in contrast what foolish people do. He said a wise man will build his house upon the rock. Now, the same storm comes to both the wise and the foolish. The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew. It happens to both. 
The storms of life come to us all. We're going to have times in our lives and in our time here on the earth, we're going to have situations that make the difference in whether or not we go under or go over. Now, the difference between going over and going under, Jesus identifies as wisdom. The wise man comes to the place, plugging in the centurion's great faith. The wise man comes to the place where he accepts the teaching, the truth of the teaching that Jesus gave to recognize that he has authority on the earth. This servant is going to be healed only by the actions of the centurion. So wise people recognize that they have authority. Foolish Christians refuse to accept that and stay in the perpetual babyhood stage of Christianity by thinking that everything is up to God and however things go in life is the result of what God's will is for our lives. But the centurion went beyond that. The centurion recognized that he had authority. Now, how did he recognize that he had authority? Because that's what Jesus taught. I believe that the, the recording of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 is given to us there in that setting to show us the connection of the teaching that he did in chapter 7. Maybe Jesus is amazed and marvels at the centurion's great faith because he was the only one that he found that had great faith. And yet the multitudes had just been taught that man has authority on the earth. Another thing, another characteristic of this centurion and the greatness of his faith was that he recognized that the word of God was the source of that authority and therefore the source of anything and everything that God provides for us. And as a result, all he needs Jesus to do is say that his servant is healed. Now the centurion is a man under authority. He understands how authority works. He understands that authority is communicated and enforced or executed by the words of a man's mouth. He recognizes that he has authority over this servant that's lying at home sick. So what he does is goes to the source of the teaching of authority and all he needs to do is get Jesus to say the word and his servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus recognizes the greatness of this man's faith and he speaks the word and his servant was healed in the same hour. It doesn't say his servant was healed instantly. See, a lot of times people have the idea that anybody that Jesus healed, he healed instantly. But that wasn't always the case. It was certainly quick. He was healed quickly. 
But just like the ten lepers that came to Jesus and shouted to him from afar off, he told them to go show themselves to the priests. And on the way, they were healed. One of them turns back around and comes back to give thanks to Jesus and worship him for what happened. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Why didn't they come back to give thanks as well? And then it says that the leper that came back was made whole. Now the implication there, and we can't exactly prove it for sure through the words that are there in the scripture, but the implication is that he got something more than what the rest of them got. Well, we know how leprosy works. Leprosy eats away at body parts. And so to say that he was made whole, we know that he was already healed. That's why he came back to thank Jesus for what he did. So being made whole doesn't mean that he was healed. That had already taken place. Being made whole may include the replacement of body parts that had been eaten away by the disease. Like I said, we can't say for sure, but something else happened to him than just the healing of his body. And there are other places where we see that Jesus healed those that were maimed. So replacing body parts wouldn't have been the first time that it happened. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, and it's kind of an obscure statement. It's in Luke chapter 18. I think it's around verse 8. Jesus told them a parable, and the end result of the parable, or the thing that he was trying to teach, is that people should always pray. Don't give up praying. Don't give up on the things that you're praying for or the things that you're asking because it looks like it's not working. So he told this parable so that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But then in explaining the parable, Jesus says, and it's kind of an off-the-cuff remark, he said, nevertheless, shall the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he comes? Shall the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he comes? Now, again, there's an implication there that doubt and unbelief will be predominant just before he comes back for the church. We know Paul taught that to the, to the church, several of the churches, and to those minister, ministry helpers that were under him. He talked about a falling away that is interpreted by much of the church as the rapture. But if he was talking just about the rapture, he could have used a word that was more specific to that. And the fact that he didn't use a more specific word to that, but used a word that could mean either catching away, as in the terms of the rapture, or falling away in the sense of apostasy. The fact that he used a word that could be interpreted both ways rather than specific words, and there are specific words for both that which we know of as the catching away or the rapture 
And another specific word that could be used concerning apostasy or falling away from doctrine, sound doctrine. The fact that he did not, did not choose specific, a specific word one way or the other tells me that he's talking about both. Folks, we live in strange times. If somebody had predicted to us just five years ago, maybe three years ago, that the things that are governing and pushing this world in the direction that it's going would take place so quickly, come to pass so quickly, I wouldn't have believed it. I'm not going to speak for you, but I wouldn't have accepted it. No way in the world would I have thought that it was possible for things to change so quickly. We're living in a time where the world is being governed by a pandemic that has a 91%, I'm sorry, a 99.1% recovery rate. We've got a, a new illness, a new sickness related to the COVID family of viruses that is absolutely governing the direction of our world. One of the things that's amazing to me is the dispute and the disunity among the church regarding all things COVID. We have irrefutable evidence that this COVID pandemic came about because health organizations, the National Institute of Health, and also the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, or whatever it means, contributed, donated money specifically for what they call gain-of-function research. Which made the COVID virus transmissible between human beings rather than just the animal species, the animal kingdom, where it was confined before the gain-of-function gain of research was done. Folks, we don't have a pandemic. We've got a mandemic. So man creates a virus and then tells people that this virus is naturally occurring in nature, which it's not, and then comes up with vaccines that are less effective than the natural immunity that God has placed within our bodies. Now, when we look at the reasons why things like these, this is taking place or why we're living under these conditions, we have to remember that the word says the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, that's starting to fit in place now for us because we see that the 
the virus vaccine, which in specific and literal terms can't really be called a vaccine because it doesn't do away with transmissible, the transmissible, transmissibility of the virus. So man created the virus. It spread either intentionally or unintentionally to the population of, of the world. And then world governments are pushing the pharmaceutical companies to create a vaccine that makes them billions and billions of dollars. And where's the church? I know that world governments, countries don't care where the church is. They don't care what the church does. But if you look at the state of the church in America, at least, you've got some people saying, that the vaccines are given to us from God. Sure, it comes to the pharmaceutical companies. But they're looking for the answer to be something that man has created. Is that the right way to go? Now, folks, I'm, I'm going to make a disclaimer here. Because saying some of the things that I'm saying and some of the things I'm going to say are going to offend people. There's an old adage, I'm not sure who to credit it to, but there's an old adage that says the intelligence of the person that you're talking to is directly related to how much he agrees with you. <laughs> I think we're guilty of that sometimes in our preaching and teaching the word. It's easy to say controversial things in a crowd of people that agree with you. But there's a lot of people that won't agree with us. For example, we know that Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us that sickness and disease is of the curse of the law. Well, we have to include the COVID virus and the family of COVID viruses in that list that identifies that all sickness and all diseases, whether they were specifically named in Deuteronomy 28 or not, all these things are a part of the curse of the law and therefore originated in Satan. Now, folks, I've got what they call herd immunity for the COVID virus. Sometime during the middle of last year, we were with my family out in Palm Springs for a few days. And I had fallen asleep on the couch in the hotel room. And I woke up 
And as soon as I woke up, I recognized that there were things that were taking place that were unusual. I was hallucinating. Now, my mind told me that what I was seeing was impossible to see. And I instantly asked the Lord. I I didn't really uh, frame it as a serious inquiry. But I remember as soon as I woke up and I saw that things were out of the ordinary, something's wrong here. I just said within myself, what is this? And I knew instantly it was COVID. It wasn't that the Lord spoke it to me. I just instantly knew it was COVID. Well, I did what I believed acting on the word would do in that situation. And I rebuked it. I said, I'm not going to have COVID. And things got interesting from that point forward. I was still hallucinating. So I knew that I couldn't trust the things that I was seeing to be real. And it took me about two hours to get back to sleep. I claim the promises of sleep that God gives his beloved. And the fact that the word says I'm accepted in the beloved. So sleep belongs to me. And it took me about two hours to get back to sleep, finished the night out sleeping, woke up at the normal time the next morning, no symptoms, no anything, no trace of what had taken place the night before for two hours during the night. And I've never had another inch of trouble concerning the COVID virus. I had COVID for two hours. And as a result, my body has built up the immunities to where I don't have to worry about getting it again. Now, the news media, parroting the administration, the government's position, our country's government, says that I should get a vaccine. But a vaccine... according to studies that have been done, is much less effective. One study showed that that natural immunity was seven times more effective than the COVID vaccine. Another study showed that it was 20 times more effective than the vaccine. But the government, on just about every level, is trying to force me to get a vaccine. I happen to work in a situation where my employer does not require it of me. But folks, I've got to tell you, this is a hill that I'll die on. I'm not saying that you should. And I want to be very careful in the way that I say things and the explanations that I give as I'm saying them. Because I know there are people in this room that have already gotten the vaccine. I know there are other people in this room that are trying at least to be forced by their employers to get the vaccine. And are looking at this as they have no other option. And I don't want to criticize either group. 
there's a verse of scripture in Second First uh, Chronicles chapter twelve. Let me read this to you. First Chronicles chapter twelve tells us about how David, who's been running from Saul, you remember the story. The people liked David because he had been anointed of God by the prophet Samuel to be the next king in Saul's place. But David wouldn't attack Saul. He recognized and said on several occasions when he had a clear opportunity to kill Saul and take over as the king of Israel, he said that he wouldn't do it because the Bible says, touch not God's anointed. So that put him on the run to spare his own life. But after several years, it comes to the place where David is to be made king of Israel in Saul's stead. And it tells us about how different numbers of warriors, military forces from the different tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, how that they began to gather around David. And then right here in the midst of this, talking about the hundreds or the thousands of military personnel that were joining up with David and supporting his being made king. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It says, And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understandings of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. So you've got some of the tribes of Israel that are supplying military force under David's command as the new king of Israel. But the tribe of Issachar, nowhere does it say that they contributed military forces or, or personnel. It says they had understanding of the times. And that understanding of the times dictated what action Israel should take. In other words, the people of the tribe of Issachar, the 200 of the tribe of Issachar, that joined themselves to David, didn't join themselves as military might or military power. They joined in advisory capacities, apparently, because they understood the times that we live in. That really speaks to me. If that's the pattern that God saved for us, then it seems to me that an understanding of the times for us could and should and will dictate to the people of God what we should do. Now, I don't want this to become a science class because I wouldn't be qualified to teach it. And so I don't want to start nitpicking scientific facts, although there are plenty in, a, in number, to justify from a simple and specific science position my choice my determination, my will, where the vaccine is concerned. But one thing we know from just common sense, 
well, we probably shouldn't use that word. Common sense didn't seem to be so common anymore. But good sense would dictate the simple truth that it's going to be years before we know what the real results of the vaccines are. And all the time that makes up those years before we know for sure, the people that are on the side of the vaccines, the people that are trying to force us to take vaccines that we may not decide that we want for ourselves or our families. All that time is going to be dominated by the ones that want us to take the vaccine. In other words, the government is going to keep harping on these vaccines until Jesus comes back for the church. The news media is going to spread fear concerning the vaccines until Jesus comes back for the church. The medical community, not all, but certainly a significant percentage, is going to continue to demand that we take a vaccine that nobody really knows what the results will be. Like I said, this is a hill that I'll die on. Now I want you to think about something. Think of all the times in the Old Testament that the people of God stood against the actions of governments. Probably the first would be Moses. God instructed Moses to go against the greatest world ruler of that time, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh, a part of his position and a part of the Egyptian culture, was thought to be a god himself. And that's the ultimate end of, of world governments. The more a nation can grow and expand their influence, the more godlike the leaders of those governments think themselves to be. God went with Pharaoh. I'm sorry, God went with Moses before Pharaoh and proved in 10 different examples, 10 different ways, that Pharaoh is not God. And as a result, Moses, as the representative of the children of Israel, wound up leading them out of captivity. As the scriptures say, with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. But Pharaoh, in his grief, after the death of his firstborn son, and the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, 
he changes his mind and decides he wants to destroy these people. Now, folks, how stupid can you get? The God that just proved through the, what are known as the ten plagues, in every case, that he was more powerful than anything Pharaoh or the Egyptians could do, he decides, Pharaoh decides, that he's going to go after these people and kill them. Well, that didn't work out real well for him because the children of Israel escaped the land of Egypt on dry ground walking through the Red Sea. But when Pharaoh's armies came after them, the sea swallowed them up and they all drowned. The greatest military force on the face of the earth is destroyed and nobody, their enemies don't even have to throw a rock. So God proved himself not only to Israel, but to us that have the account, the supernatural account of what happened. He proved that world governments couldn't stand before him. Daniel, who became one of the advisors to the king that had conquered Israel later in their history, wound up through political gamesmanship having to be thrown in the lion's den because he would not cease from praying to his God, the true God, the one and only God, the creator of heaven and earth. And even against the king's wishes, he had been tricked by other advisors that were jealous of Daniel. So Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den because he disobeyed the order that these enemies of Daniel had convinced the king to put in effect. And in the example, the most peaceful example that we could possibly imagine, Daniel comes out of the lion's den with no hurt or harm unto his body. And then the king, seeing what was done, seeing the greatness of Daniel's God, throws his enemies into the lion's den and they're devoured. And it results in the king showing honor to God because of who, he, who God had proved himself to be. The three Hebrew children are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar as they were demanded by law to do. And in this fire that is hotter, seven times hotter than it had ever been before, so much so that it slays or kills the two mightiest warriors that Nebuchadnezzar has, when they throw them into the fiery furnace, the fire destroys these two men that are tasked with the job of putting the three Hebrew children in there. And the king somehow is able to look down into the fire. And when he does, 
he sees that there's four men in there. And even though the three Hebrew children are thrown in tied up and bound, they're loosed and free. I guess the fire burned the, the bonds off. But nothing else. It brought no hurt or harm to their bodies or even the smell of smoke on their clothes. Once again, God shows himself to be the greatest power, greater in force, greater in goodness than Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest ruler on the earth at that time. The Bible is full of examples where God withstands or let me say it this way, and this may be a better way to say, God stands with those children of his who withstand the, the evil dictates of government. So I guess my message this morning, folks, is that don't be afraid to stand on the word. God will see you through. Now, like I said a little bit before, I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood here. I want to make sure that I don't leave something unsaid. And so let me get this out right front. I'm not talking about picking a fight with the government. I'm not trying to make a name for myself in any way whatsoever. The only name that really matters to me is somebody that teaches the truth. But I'm not trying to pick a fight with the government or anybody else for that matter. My position, desired position, would rather be I'll leave the government alone if they'll leave me alone. But that doesn't seem to be the government's position. One of the things that, well, I've already said this, but let me repeat it. The speed at which these things are taking place are just baffling to me. I have no idea how somebody that doesn't know God, doesn't have Jesus in his heart, withstands these evil days. How does somebody without the, light, the knowledge of God, how do they operate in these last days? I feel most sorry for Christians that are not educated in the truth of the word to such a degree that they know to rely on things that you can't see rather than things that you can't. And I assume, I think I'm right on this, but you decide for yourself. I think that's why there's so much discrepancy in the body of Christ concerning the vaccines and the pandemic. Folks, we're being told that the truth is a lie and that the lie is the truth. 
And it's incumbent upon us as individuals, not just as a church family, but as individuals. It demands of us that we know God and his word well enough to be able to determine the truth from the lie. For example, how does an unvaccinated person create any harm or be any threat to somebody that's been vaccinated? It doesn't make sense on any level whatsoever. And so again, the solution, as far as the government's concerned, is to force the unvaccinated to be vaccinated. But there's already scientific proof that the vaccine does not destroy the transmissibility of the virus. In other words, we see example after example. And even though the news media doesn't want us to hear these things, truth is trickling out to let us know that people that are vaccinated can still get the virus. Well, why would we want to be vaccinated then? Nobody will try to answer that question because any question, any answer along that line that's been offered just doesn't make sense. One thing that it's done for me is that it's shown me how the mark of the beast will come about. Now, don't get concerned about it. The Bible says that the church is out of here long before the mark of the beast comes around at the midpoint of tribulation. I used to look at the pre-tribulation rapture as the goodness of God. Well, we can still look at it that way. But with this pandemic stuff, it's becoming more and more clear to me that God gets his people out of here before the tribulation begins so that he winds up with a family at all. Because the church is clearly identified that they don't know the difference between what God does and what the devil does. And we're going to see more and more the name of God invoked for the, the actions that some people want to take on their own. I read a report earlier this week that there's a 60,000 member force from Haiti that's on the march to the southern border of America. And they're being led by an American who has led other people or attempted to lead other people to cross the border into America. But apparently the last time they did this, just a couple of months back, he was thwarted by the Mexican army. And so the purpose of the report of the article was this guy was saying that we're ready for war because the hand of God is upon us. 
Now, folks, I'm not being critical here. But is that something God would tell somebody to do? Here's an American claiming to be a Christian. Actually, I think he's a missionary of some type. Leading people to illegally cross the southern border of America and willing to go to war with anybody that will stop them. We're going to have to know the voice of God for ourselves so that we know what positions to take with the myriad of things that are coming at us in these last days. This I know. Sickness is of the devil. This I know, that God's word never fails. Standing on his word is the safest place there is to be. I wonder what Paul understood when he wrote to Timothy about perilous times. Paul writes to Timothy during a period of time that he himself is in prison. He had been in prison on a number of occasions, but this was the last time that he was in prison. And this time, this last time would lead to his death. And he was ready to go. We had a chance last time we were in Rome to go to the place where Paul was beheaded And the historical accounts were that Paul raced and ran forward to the, job, the chopping block where his head was severed. He had talked the guards out of binding him, and so they took the chains off of him, and then Paul ran on ahead to come to the place, and it was a stone, raised stone stump type thing. And he wrapped his arms around it and stretched out his neck for the soldier, the, the Roman soldier, to cut his head off. Immediately after that, the Roman soldier knelt down next to Paul's body and put his own head on the chopping block. Paul's death had such an impact on him and the life that he saw Paul live in prison leading up to his beheading that he gave his life to Jesus at that point in time and he was killed right alongside of Paul. I don't have a death wish 
And I fully expect to see Jesus come. But folks, I'm not going to follow what the world governments tell me I have to do. I'd be careful about clapping on that. It may be seen as joining me. Paul lived in a day where Christians were persecuted to death. And yet he writes to Timothy that in the last days there will be perilous times. He doesn't say that the persecution of the church will continue. Thus describing what perilous times means in the way that he used it. He calls perilous times something worse than what he's experiencing that leads to his death. In other words, Paul is relating to Timothy, who is himself killed on the streets of Ephesus when he was 80 years old. He, he, Paul, is basically saying, I know the church persecution is bad, and I know that many have been killed for their faith, just as I will, and as it turned out, just as Timothy was. But in the last days before Jesus comes back, things are really going to get bad. I would think that most Christians would think of the Roman persecution against the church and against believers to be as bad as it gets. But buckle up. Now whatever how bad it gets means you can escape some of it by living your Christian life in the shadows. Or you can remember that God tells us in his word that in the last days, which I certainly believe we're in, there'll be a, an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, a moving of the Holy Ghost to bring in the precious fruit of the earth. I've always looked at that as being a revival. But what if the revival is sparked by the way the world sees the church live in these last days, these perilous times. So that people are won into the kingdom of God just the way the Roman soldier was that was in charge of beheading Paul. Folks, I'm not a prophet. And I recommend to you that you be careful of the ones that call themselves prophets. Paul said in the last days there'd be plenty of, of false ones. It would be wonderful. I wish that God would just show me what's going to happen and how it's going to come about.
so that I could tell every one of you what to prepare for. But there are a lot of people that are calling themselves prophets here in these last days that have already shown that they don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And because of the desire of the church, at least some part of the church, those that have been wrong on their predictions up to this point are just doubling down and making more predictions. In the Old Testament days, if somebody claimed to be a prophet and what they said would happen to come to pass didn't come to pass, you didn't have to worry about them prophesying anymore. They were put to death. But this age of grace, God allows people that had been wrong on their predictions and their prophecies before to continue on to mislead and deceive others. Because God expects you and I, all of us, To know the truth and to be in such fellowship, close communion with God, that our hearts tell us whether what we're hearing is right or wrong. We're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, they deceived me. Because God put the unction in you and gave you the ability by his spirit on the inside of you. To know the truth. What times we live in. What times we live in. Let me close with Matthew chapter 8 again. The story of the centurion. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. When the Son of Man comes back to the earth, will he find faith here? Or will he find doubt and unbelief as the predominant spiritual forces? Folks, more than anything else, and I'm sure you feel the same way, but more than anything else, I want Jesus to return to our church marveling at our great faith. Marveling, as he did with the centurion, Marveling at the faithfulness of his people to keep and honor his word. Isn't that what you want to?
Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we know you love us. Only a God or a father of love would leave us in perilous times with the truth of your word and the power of the name of Jesus so that we can overcome anything that comes at us. Thank you, Father, for guiding us and directing us by your spirit, ordering our steps so that we know what to do. You told your disciples, Jesus, that there would be times where they'd be brought before kings and rulers and not to try to plan for what they were going to say at that time, but to trust the words that they speak to come from you. But Father, we do determine this. We predetermine this. That we will take no action that contradicts your word or any action counterproductive toward what your word says to do. If that means we have to defy city governments, we will. If that means we have to defy state government, then we will. If it means we have to defy federal government, then we will. We make the same determination that Daniel and the three Hebrew children made. We will keep and honor your word and expect you to be just as faithful with us as you were with them. We thank you, therefore, Father, for the delivering power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Say this after me. I serve the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he lifts me up. He delivers me. He keeps me healthy and provides for my needs. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, we love you. Hope we haven't scared you. But there's nothing to be scared of when you're walking with God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.